Good morning. It is a blessing to be with you all and to, to study with you all. It has been a blessing all week. I haven't minded the wind one bit. Um, the time has come to build the house of the Lord. Brother Smith made a good guess last night that that was Nehemiah, but uh, it's, it's, that could, that could, it's a good title for Nehemiah. But uh, this, we're today going to look at the book of Haggai. Now, looking at the book of Haggai, I don't know how much you know right at the top of your head about Haggai. It's a two-chapter book. It is, interestingly, uh, the only two-chapter book in the Bible. And um, that um, it is a very simple book to understand. But what we're going to do at first is to get the background of the book of Haggai. As we go from this background of the book of Haggai, I think it will help you appreciate the points that we make from the text more readily. If it seems like at first we're simply reviewing history, we're doing this but with a purpose to understand the situation, to drive home the application. Now, in order to get the background of the book of Haggai, we're going to look principally at the book of Ezra. But first of all, understand Babylonian captivity and what a disaster that was from the Jewish perspective. In 587 BC, the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They burnt the temple which was representative of God's special dwelling with the people of Israel. They burnt the temple. They took the people as slaves back to Babylon. The group of people who had been freed as slaves from the land of Egypt are now going back as slaves to the land of Babylon. They took the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, and while Zedekiah watches helplessly, they kill his sons, and then they put out Zedekiah's eyes. The last thing Zedekiah ever saw were his sons being killed. Babylonian captivity was not because God was weak and unable to defend his people and protect his people. Babylonian captivity was a result of the people's sins and rebellion against God. But the amazing thing is, is that even after the people go into captivity, God does not give up on the people. God doesn't give up on the people. But God prophesied through prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel that one day the people would come out of Babylonian captivity. And around 539 B.C., I probably should have that date up there if you want to add that to your notes. Around 539 B.C., 
Cyrus, who is king of Persia, who at this moment would be the most powerful king in all the world, makes a decree that all the Jews could go back, all the Jews who desired to do so, could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. It is fascinating how the book of Ezra opens with an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Listen to it and listen to this emphasis on God. Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever there is among all of you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that it was to fulfill the word of the Lord by Jeremiah's mouth that the Lord stirs up Cyrus and Cyrus makes a decree the God of heaven has told me the God of heaven has, has led me to send you back to the land um, to rebuild the house of God. I have here the rather cryptic note uh, Ezra 1 the sovereignty of God is stressed in Ezra 1.1, 1-1-4, and Ezra 6.22. Uh, without going into detail, Ezra 1-6 through 6 is a section that covers from about 539 to 5.15. There's a 60-year break between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. And what I'm stressing is in this section, the sovereignty of God is emphasized from the beginning to the end. Those are not the only places in that section that it's emphasized, but this shows us how important this subject is in this section. Now, look in Ezra 1, 5 and 6. Ezra 1, 5 and 6. These people who are sent back to build the house of the Lord, it said everyone whose, whose spirit God stirred up. God stirs up Cyrus' spirit to make the decree that you can return and rebuild the house of the Lord. God stirs up the spirit of the Jewish people. Everyone who went, God stirs up their spirit to go and rebuild the house of the Lord. And in verse 6, all of them, all of them incur, in, in, all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables. Now, do you remember? When Israel came out of the land of Egypt in Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36, 
how the Egyptians gave them silver and gold and all kinds of things like that when they left the land of Egypt. The point is to portray leaving Babylon as another exodus or a second exodus. Just like the people were brought out of slavery in Egypt, now the people are brought out of slavery in Babylon. And the express purpose of their return is to rebuild the house of the Lord. Remember that. That is their purpose. To rebuild the house of the Lord. So they are going back with the intention of rebuilding God's house. Now let's skip ahead a little bit to Ezra chapter 3 verses 7 through 13. Here we find the people working on the second temple. As they are working on the second temple, there are all kinds of points of comparison between this temple and the first temple that was built by Solomon. In Ezra chapter 3, what they do is they Israel sends food and oil to the people of Tyre who send wood back to the land of Jerusalem, back to the city of Jerusalem where the temple can be built. Do you remember the name of Hiram king of Tyre? Hiram king of Tyre, remember, made a covenant with Solomon in the building of the first temple over 400 years before and the same kind of deal was worked out where they get their wood from Tyre and Sidon, they get the wood from there, and they send food and oil to the people of Tyre. So what I'm trying to say again, the text emphasizes similarities between the second temple and the first temple. Another point of comparison is that both the second temple and the first temple started in the second month. And then another point of comparison is when the foundation of the temple is laid, they sang the same song. They sang, they, they, they sang the same song. I can twist your tongue as they did earlier in Solomon's temple. They sang the song, For He indeed is good, His loving kindness is everlasting. Do you know that song can be traced at least from the time of David in 1 Chronicles 16 here to the time of rebuilding the second temple in around 538 B.C.? They sang this song for a period of almost 500 years. I do not know in their songs for worship what number that was. But I do know this, when they called that number, everyone recognized the song. Oh, that's the number for uh, the, sing, the Lord's loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. But think with me here just a second. You can talk in this situation, I guess, because it's a Bible class. What do you associate with the time of Solomon? What do you associate with that time? Well, yes, him personally, he had great wisdom, but particularly 
His wealth was spread to all the community, wasn't it? The Bible says silver was accounted as nothing in the reign of Solomon. So particularly, as Jamie says, his wealth, his wealth. This group of people who are coming back to the land of Babylon, they don't have the riches. They don't have the wealth that those people did in the days of Solomon. And when they laid the foundation for the temple, there were mixed emotions. The younger people shouted and they celebrated. This is a great day. This is a great step forward for God's kingdom, for God's rule. They were shouting and celebrating. But the old people who had seen this temple that Solomon had built, they wept. Now I grant it that it doesn't specifically say why they wept. But I think the implication is very clear. They are weeping because this doesn't look like the temple they could remember. This doesn't look anything like it. This temple is not as impressive as that particular temple was. And what I'm trying to say right here is the ground is already laid for discouragement. Because you have people who've returned. They've returned to build the house of the Lord. They're excited about the project. But when they get involved in the project, they recognize this doesn't look as good as what I remember. And they are weeping. And not only is there discouragement within, there is opposition without. There's opposition without. The enemies of Judah. And I find it significant that they are called the enemies of Judah in Ezra 4 verse 1. Even before we see the dialogue, even before we see the interaction, we are alerted to the fact that these people do not have the best interest of Judah and Benjamin at heart. They do not. And they say, we want to build with you. We have been living in this land ever since the days of Ezrahaddon, king of Assyria, and we want to build with you. When the people of Judah deny that request, what happens is these enemies of the Jewish people set out to discourage them and frighten them and hire counselors against them. They never had the best interests of the Jewish people at heart. They never wanted, they wanted to uh, bring this plot down by being involved with them. When they would not let them be involved with them, uh, they seek to bring the plot down as outsiders. And they're successful enough. I hope you've been catching it. Keep up with the dates a little bit. That all work on the temple ceased till the second year of Darius. Second year of Darius would be about 520 B.C. They came back about 539, 538 B.C. They start building to build the foundation and because of the opposition, because of the discouragement, they stopped building the temple for 15 years until God raises up a couple of prophets 
by the name of Haggai and Zechariah who preach to build the temple of the Lord. Zerubbabel is the governor of the people. Jeshua is the high priest. He's called Jeshua in Ezra. He is called Joshua in the book of Haggai. But he is the high priest. But they listen to this preaching and they rise up and they build the temple of the Lord. Now I've given you all this background. I want you to think about this and we're going to make application to our situation. Make application to our day that these people come with the express purpose of building God's house, of building God's temple. They experience a discouragement. They experience opposition. All work ceases for 15 years until Haggai and Zechariah began to preach. Haggai preached. Haggai was one of the few preachers, the few prophets of the Old Testament who had a blessing to see that the people did what he preached. What did he preach? Well, let's go to Haggai 1. Haggai 1, and we particularly want to center on verses 1 through 11 here. Haggai 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time is not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it, and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, the earth has withheld its produce. I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on man, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So here in Haggai chapter 1, the people said it's not time to build the house of the Lord. Haggai is telling them, let's rise and build. Let's build the temple of the Lord. They say it's not time to build God's house. And I want to tell you that from a human perspective, they had good reasons, good reasons 
to state, to argue, hey, this is not the right time. Hey, guy, we appreciate what you're preaching and you're saying some good things that we need to hear, but it's just not the time yet. It's just not the right time for us to rise and build the house of God. One of the good reasons they could give while it's not time for us to build God's house is they could have said, well, the economy is poor, poor right now. Economy is not doing well. And everything in what we just read emphasizes that. Did you notice 1 verse 6? You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And it's like the one who earns money is putting his money into a purse that has holes in it and it drops right through it. God says you brought in much in verse 9, but I blew it away. I blew it away. And there was drought in verse 10. A drought in verses 10 and 11. A drought and a famine that accompanied it. That it show us, listen, hey guy, it's not a good time to build because the economy is poor. And another reason, you know, hey guy, right now, we're just discouraged and we need some upbuilding. And we, we, we can't be expected right now when we're so discouraged and we're so broken to do the house of the, to build the house of the Lord. We can't do this. And their enemies were many. We saw that in Ezra chapter 4. The enemies had frustrated their plans. The enemies had hired counselors against them. The enemies had made appeals to the Persian government. Let's stop their work. All of these things are true. And these things, in one way or another, are almost always true. If we look for a perfect time to do the Lord's work, that perfect time may never come. If we have to have just the right circumstance and just the right situation, that time may never come. Now the verses that I give, the verses from Proverbs, talk about the sluggard says, there's a lion in the street. Proverbs 22, 13. Proverbs 26, verse 13. Why would the sluggard say that? Again, I think the idea is the sluggard is looking, the sluggard is looking for any reason not to go out and work. And so, there's a lion in the streets. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 4, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Does that mean anything to you in Lubbock, Texas? If you watch the wind, you will not sow. If you look at the clouds, you will not reap. If the farmer waits for the absolute perfect conditions, 
the absolute perfect situation in order to plant his crops, he's not going to plant anything. And if we have to have perfect condition to do God's work, it may never come. It may never come. When we talk to people, it's not going to be the perfect time. It's not going to be the perfect situation. And we're not going to say everything perfectly. But still, God can use that sometimes in marvelous ways. I had a friend who's told me the story of how 30 years ago a couple of people knocked on his door and they wanted to talk to him about the Bible. He acknowledged that he had had a little bit too much alcohol at that moment. But he said, I agreed with them to study the Bible. And he said, if there was ever a mistake to be made in personal evangelism, those guys made it in their study with me. They made every possible mistake you can make. And he said, but still... In spite of that, in spite of all their mistakes and all their flubs, they created in my heart a desire for God and His Word. It led him ultimately to be converted. And he considers those two people who knocked on his door close friends to this day. He not only became a Christian, but he has preached the gospel for many years. Now they didn't have the right situation and the perfect candidate and deal at the perfect approach and it still worked. It worked. God sometimes can do amazing things in spite of us and not because of us. But there's rarely a time where we can't give what are legitimate excuses for not being involved in God's work. But the prophet calls the people, rise and build. And I want to tell you something. All these excuses the people had for not building the house of the Lord. We can't build the house of the Lord now. We can't build it. The economy's bad and we're discouraged and we're broken. Those those things didn't seem to slow them down any when it came to their own houses. Didn't slow them down a bit. I want you to look back at Haggai 1. And I want to make a point here. Haggai 1 in verses 3 and 4. Haggai said the word of the Lord. The Bible says the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And by the way, we talked the other day in our uh, podcast 
about looking for phrases and ideas that keep recurring in the text. Notice how often in this short two-chapter book that Haggai has something like, this is what the Lord says, or this is the Lord's message. It is used so often, the Bible is not wanting us to miss that fact. But in verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled house while this house lies desolate? You don't have time to build God's house, but, but you've got time to build your own house. You've got time to build paneled houses. Now, what you find in these verses, the reason I've given these verses from Deuteronomy 33, from 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, and Jeremiah 22 verse 13, the reason I have given you those verses is I believe those are all of the times in the Old Testament this word that's translated paneled is used. All of the times that they're used are in those passages uh, up to Jeremiah 22 verse 13. Now, Caleb, you read 1 Kings 6 and 7. Whose time are we in? 1 Kings 6 and 7. Solomon, you got it. Solomon, you got it. And uh, so you, good job. Is Solomon's time, what did we already talk about with Solomon's time? It's a time of wealth, isn't it? In, in, second, in Jeremiah 22, 13, Jehoiakim is building his paneled houses, but he's not paying his workers in that case. But, but you see, the, there's a point I'm trying to make with this. These paneled houses seem to have been not just your normal houses. These were houses that were characteristic of the people in the most wealthy time in the days of Solomon in 1 Kings 6, in 1 Kings 7, in the, a king is described this way in Jeremiah 22 and verse 13. They don't have time to build the house of God, but that doesn't slow them down and building themselves the best and the finest. Now I put... 2 Samuel 7.2 does not use that word paneled. I put that this is unlike 2 Samuel 7 and verse 2. I put it's unlike it. What happens in 2 Samuel 7.2, do you remember how David's conscience bothers him because the ark of God dwells in a tent? And I live in a house of cedar? David's conscience is deeply and profoundly disturbed because he lives in a better house than God has for the Ark of the Covenant. 
These people aren't like David. Their conscience doesn't bother them that they live in a better house than the Lord lives in. And their conscience doesn't bother them about that at all. They say it's not time to build the Lord's house, but they have no problem building for themselves paneled houses. Now our issue is not building the house of the Lord, building the temple in the sense they built it. But does this describe us, my friend? Does this describe us that we will spare no expense when it comes to ourselves having the best and the finest? But when it comes to the work of the Lord, it's just whatever's left over. A friend told me that he was in a congregation and he felt very comfortable saying this because he knew the person he was talking to very well. He was not only a brother in Christ, but he was also a brother in the flesh. And so they had been intimately acquainted with one another. And this brother was building himself the finest new house available. A beautiful brick home. And he said all the while he was putting a dollar in the collection plate. Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of God lies in ruin? What does our bank account tell us about ourselves? The Bible says in verse 9, it says, each one of you runs to his own house. And I put some illustrations up here. That word runs can be used in running to something good or running to something evil. You can run to something good like the old man Abraham in Genesis 18 runs to serve these three visitors who have come to him. But these people are running not for an express sinful purpose like Proverbs 1 verse 16, but they are running to take care of their needs and forgetting all about God's needs. Now are we like this? Are we like this? Philippians 1.21 says... For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2.21 says all men seek their own and not those of Christ Jesus. I want to tell you what I worry about. About the modern church in America. It is not so much one doctrine out there looming that is going to drive us all away from God. I'm not minimizing the importance of 
seeking to follow and read God's Word and everything. But I'll tell you what I am worried about more than anything. That we become so accustomed to our wealthy and materialistic culture and we become so accustomed to to seeking the best for ourselves and spending little on God I think if someone and some people ask me what do you think the greatest people God greatest problem God's people in this country face I think it is apathy we have grown we have grown disinterested in the things of God and are more interested in providing for ourselves right here. But I, but I stated something earlier. I, I said if, if someone were to examine your bank account, they would know something about you. Now what I'm about to tell you is such an amazing story. I myself found it hard to believe. And I kept checking with the person and said, now you sure of this? And this was a person in a rural town in the south who told me this story. There was a fatal car accident. The policeman came upon the scene and the policeman seeing all that had transpired was trying to figure out the identity of this person. Who is it that we need to contact about this death? As he is looking through the belongings of this person who's passed away, he comes to their checkbook. He's looking for their name, but he cannot help but notice as he's looking through it how much they have given to the local church that they were a part of. person didn't look wealthy at all. But look how much they had given to this particular local church. The policeman not only contacted the family and expressed his condolences, but he said, if that church was so important to this person, maybe they've got something to offer me. He started attending that church and was ultimately baptized in the Christ because of what was in this person's checkbook. Now, in the language of Hebrews 11.4, that person, even though he was dead, was still speaking. What would anybody who came upon your belongings see? May God help us. May God help us to be people Who live like that? God's work, God's calls 
always takes priority. This is a simple lesson that we're seeking to drive home from the text. That God's work has priority. Haggai was emphasizing that it's time to build. The people said it's not time. And he says you yourselves are living in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate. But the solution to their problem is easy. They are experiencing drought. They are experiencing famine that is often associated with drought. But the solution is you need to change your priorities. You need to build God's house. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. Go up to the mountains and bring wood. Now, do any of you in your translations in Haggai 1.8, and please raise your hand if this is the case, do any of your translations have the word mountain in singular instead of plural? Go up to the mountain. Do any of your translations have that? Okay, a couple of you do have that. There's some of you that may have that as a footnote. In actu Actually, in Hebrew, this is singular. Go up to the mountain and bring wood. Now, if go up to the mountains, that may be just get the wood for the mountains, build the house of the Lord. But, but the mountain singular might refer to the temple mount. You go up to the mount, mountain, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. But, but God has told them the problem. Their problem is their priorities are on themselves. Their priorities are not on the Lord. Their priority is looking after their own house and not His house. And the solution to this problem is you bring wood and you go up to the mountain and you build my house. And God says that I may be glorified. That I may be glorified. When we think about what we do in worship, or what we do every day as we live our lives, do we think about what pleases Him or what pleases us? And we might talk of liking this in worship and liking that. But we always must make sure that our priority is pleasing Him. Doing what He wants. And that's what it's all about. We don't come here today to get honor and glory for ourselves. We come here to exalt our God and to hopefully build up each other in our faith in God. We do it so that we can live with God eternally and that we can encourage everyone else that we come in contact to be there too. God may be glorified. It is interesting sometimes as a preacher. You don't always get this. But sometimes people feel a compulsion 
to come and explain to you something wrong that they've done that you would have never known about had they not stated it. A few years ago, we were in a grocery store on a Sunday night. We'd come back from Sunday night services and we were in the grocery store and a person that we only knew vaguely from a softball team came up and explained to me, and I would have never known this, never knew didn't know where he went to church, but explained to me why he didn't go to church that day. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of interesting. And he stated that, you know, his, my daughter had a softball tournament. And, but he said, I'm sure the Lord, sure the Lord will understand. Well, why do we put the obligation on the Lord to understand us instead of us understanding Him? Why do we do that? If you make the decision and you speak to your child and say, I love you. We enjoy seeing you play. But God is always going to take priority in this house. How much more impact is that going to have on your child? And what a positive impact that's going to have on your child in days to come. In years to come. And that may make a drastic difference in their life and in how they raise their children. God's work should always be our goal and our priority. God created us in Acts 17 verse 27 that we might seek Him and find Him. And He added this word of encouragement. He is not far from each one of us. He's not far from each one of us. And in Matthew 6 verses 32 and 33 the nations seek after what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall wear. That's the way the nations live. But you seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all these things will be added to you. May God be our greatest loyalty. May God be our deepest longing. May God be our highest goal. May God be our all in all. I do appreciate your attention. May the Lord bless you and uh, that will be the end of class.